Well, happy Easter, everybody. We all doing well? Yep, I always ask that and no one ever answers me, but that's all right. So, hey, also Thursday, did anyone enjoy their April Fool's Day? Did anyone pull a prank? Oh, you got pranked. Pl- do tell. Do tell. There's always that moment, isn't there? You know, even like when you know an April Fool's prank. She said, by the way, a professor called a pop quiz right after the lecture. But there's that moment, you know? Anyone else get pranked or, or prank someone? Did you ever hear about some of the famous pranks in history? One of the greatest pranks, I looked this up, I did a little research, was in 1957, they did the Great Spaghetti Harvest Prank. Has anyone heard of this one? So in England, BBC did a, a little TV spot on how the spaghetti harvest in Switzerland was having a bumper crop due to mild conditions and all of that. And they had footage of, of people, Swiss farmers, you know, harvesting spaghetti from the trees, and people bought into it. And so all of these people called up the BBC and they asked them, uh, you know, where do I get a spaghetti tree? I want to grow my own one. And so they just said, um, what you do is you just take a spaghetti strand and you stick it in a tin of tomato sauce and just hope for the best, you know. It was, it's a great moment. We, uh, in New Zealand, there was, um, in 1949, there was a report that there was a mile-wide wasp swarm heading for New Zealand, heading for Auckland. And um, so they said, they said over the radio that you should, you know, wear socks over your trousers that day and put honey traps out and all of this sort of stuff. And everybody did that. They, they put their honey traps out, but the, um, the broadcasting authority didn't, didn't take to that too nicely. So we kind of got banned from doing our April Fool's jokes, but... I got to spend my Thursday at Starship Children's Hospital, so that was kind of fun, with my son. (laughs) Um, My son Liam had suspected appendicitis, um, and so we kind of rushed on down there. Molly, of course, was heading down to E-Camp, and so I'm kind of like, yay, I'm a dad, I can do this. And we spent seven hours in the hospital while they were trying to figure out whether he had appendicitis or not. They said the pain wasn't strong enough, so they said maybe not. Then the blood work came back, and they said, well, maybe. And then they did an ultrasound. They said, well, maybe not. And meanwhile, he can't eat anything because, you know, you might have a surgery. So we're sitting there seven hours, nil by mouth for this poor boy. I ate in front of him because, you know, (laughs) I'm not having surgery. So, um, and and eventually they said, no, go home. And so halfway through the day, Whitney texted me, and she's like, hang on a second. Is this an April Fool's prank? Because I texted everybody, I pray for you and all of this. Is this an April Fool's prank? And I think at the end of the day, I've decided it was. um, That Liam's gut decided to pull a prank on the two of us. And so that's what my April Fool's is. Well played, appendix, well played. There seems to be something... I don't know if poetic is the right word, but ironic maybe or fitting that we are celebrating April Fool's in the same week that we are celebrating Easter weekend. I think especially for the world that we live in, the two of those are pretty connected. That Easter might just be the most elaborate hoax ever pulled off. And those who, you know, don't believe in God will quickly dismiss the, the resurrection, the story of Jesus coming back from the dead, because let's face it, 
Not a lot of dead people come back to life. That's not a normal thing. I got up at 5.30 this morning and I felt like the dead woking up, coming back. But I went to bed alive, um, unlike Jesus. So it's, it's not really one of those beliefs that makes a whole lot of sense, does it? I mean, we, we sing about it and it makes sense in worship, right? When we talk about and we sing about the risen Savior and it all, you know, we're singing from our heart and it all makes very great sense. But then we kind of switch to our heads and we start thinking about it and we're like, did he really come back from the dead? Like if we really sit back and think about that. And what's interesting is even within the church, people are not so sure. BBC, they're featuring strongly today, they did a survey in 2017 asking people whether they believed that the resurrection was a real event. And it was interesting because, of course, you had a lot of people say, nah, that's rubbish. But even amongst active Christians, and their definition of active is go to church at least once a month, which, let's face it, in our culture, that's pretty active. Um, Even amongst active Christians, more than 40% of them did not believe that the resurrection happened as it was told in the gospel stories, in the Bible stories, like a verse-by-verse sort of, this sort of thing. So there's still some doubt remaining, even within Christians. And I put a little reflection question in the Bible app, by the way. I didn't introduce the Bible app. If you are, you may have noticed in our church, we don't have a bulletin. Uh, we do a Bible app. You've been doing my things too. I do have a clicker. Um, so Digital Outline has the passages that we're reading through, and it has... Um, some questions for you to think about and some links, which I'll talk about in a second. If you don't have the version, it's a free download from the uh, Apple Store. You can go to the menu events in Church Northwest. A neighbor can help you. We will have all of the passages and stuff up on the screen as well, though. But anyway, I put in there a reflection question for you to answer about whether you actually believe the resurrection happened, literally happened, 2,000 years ago, a guy went in the tomb, dead as a doornail, came out fully alive three days later. Something for you to reflect on. You don't have to answer. I'm not going to ask for hands because I don't want to assume that you do because a lot of people don't. And what I want to do this morning is I want to ask the question, is the resurrection, the story of Jesus coming back from the dead, is it to be taken seriously and literally Or is it just a mythical story, an April Fool's prank for the ages? I want to explore it a couple of different ways. I want to look at what the Bible says about how important this thing is, because maybe it's not such a big deal. Maybe it's one of those things we can kind of look at metaphorically. A lot of Christians sort of kind of go, maybe it didn't happen exactly that way, but it's it's an image, a metaphor for this newness of life that God gives us. Okay, maybe that's what happened. And then I want to look outside the Bible. I want to kind of go behind the Bible's back. And I want to ask, can we trust this guy when he's, you know, can we trust the Bible when it says what it says? All right, fair enough? Yes, we're all tracking. We're all kind of a little glazed over this morning, a little tired. That's all right. You know, we'll get there. So the place I want to go in the Bible is is a book called 1 Corinthians. Um, And we're going to be in chapter 15. 1 Corinthians, like a lot of the books in the New Testament, which happens from Jesus onwards for about 30 to 40 years after Jesus came, um, there's a lot of these, these uh, a lot of letters were written. Sorry. So 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a group of Jesus followers in the city of Corinth. 
And these letters, written by a guy named Paul, who did a lot of these letters, he started a lot of churches, and he tells him a lot of different things about how to live the Christian life, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and sort of unpacks some of the beliefs. In chapter 15, he takes a whole chapter, of course they didn't have chapters back in that, those days, but he takes a whole chapter to discuss this idea of the resurrection, of the dead coming to life again. All right. Uh, and what's interesting is that it highlights that we're not the only ones who weren't kind of doubting this. Even 2,000 years ago in the city of Corinth, people were kind of going, resurrection? Really? I don't think so. That sounds a little bit farcical. And so Paul is now addressing this with them. We don't have time to go through all 58 verses of the chapter, and you're very thankful that I'm not going to do that. Uh, but there's a few passages that we can head along the way. I would, however, recommend some light reading this week. If you go back, read the whole chapter, because it's an interesting argument from beginning to end um, about the importance of the resurrection and what it means for us. All good? All right, so I've got my assistant, Charlotte. She's going to read some passages for us. And if you want to start with verses 16 to 19. Okay. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. All right, so Paul doesn't pack any punches. He likes to say it like it is. And he's saying if Jesus did not complete his journey through the crucifixion when he died, that's what we celebrate on Friday, he did that, and sometimes we kind of think, yeah, that's when you know, our sins were forgiven. But Paul is saying if he did not complete that journey through to coming back to life again, then it's not finished. It's like an unfinished puzzle. The picture is not complete and you don't get a pass grade, and we're still stuck in our sins. So if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we're still lost. And if we're still lost, then what have we been doing for 2,000 years? What are, we, what are we praising for? I mean, we should praise God because He is God. He deserves praise whether He saves us or not. But we're thanking Him for what? If He didn't come back from the dead, then He's not really done for us what He said He was going to do. And we're going to get a nasty surprise when we die. And we go before God because, well, no, death hasn't been defeated, so you don't really get life. Which means we are to be pitied more than anyone in the world. It is a, truly a farce that makes our Easter celebrations ridiculous. We are literally April fools if there is no resurrection. So the stakes for this story are incredibly high. This is why people say that the resurrection is at the very core of our Christian faith. It is, because without this, nothing else matters. Nothing else counts. We're separated from God. There's nothing we can do. It's the brick that if you take it out of the wall, the entire wall collapses. So yeah, is it important? Yes. Yes, it is. But Paul goes on. There's another reason. Uh, from verses 30 to 32. Sorry, 30 to 31. And why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus, our Lord, has done in you. And 32. And 32. 
And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? And if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay, I didn't have that one up on the screen. <laughs> but yeah, this, this very basic idea. If there's no resurrection from, the, re- resurrection from the dead, right? If this life is all that we've got, why am I wasting it putting my life at risk for God's mission? Like, why would he ask me to risk my life? Because this is it. Right? I mean, this is what we got. So why am I trying to save people? What am I saving them from? You know, we, we, we go send missionaries out into the deepest, darkest Africa because we say we've got to take the word of God to all places. Why? <laughs> why? Leave them alone. You know, if this life is all I've got, just let them live it. If there's nothing more, then let's just sit back, relax, have a coffee, put your feet up, watch some TV, enjoy life while you've got it. Because there is nothing more. There's nothing else. And Paul's like, I put my life on the line daily. i got to deal with these guys in Ephesus. You remember that story, he tells them, because they would have known that story. You can check it out in the book of Acts. It's pretty wild. But he's like, why would I deal with these guys if, if, if I die and that's it? It's pointless. So for those who don't believe in God, this makes, this makes a lot of sense. This life is what we've got. Treasure it. Live it to the max. Grab hold of it. Live every moment. Go, travel, do this, buy this. Spend that because you've got to take in as much joy and happiness as you could possibly muster because when you cark it, that's it. Lights out, nothing more. But as Christians, we kind of believe something different. And yet, I wonder... And this is kind of some speculation on my part. I wonder if one of the reasons why Christians hesitate in diving all in for what God wants them to do, why they hold themselves back a little bit from really committing, is because deep down, subconsciously, they actually buy into this idea that maybe this is all we've got. And why would I risk the life that I've worked so hard to build if deep down I don't think I'm going to get it back, if this is actually it. This is a hard thing. I've seen this in my life. I've kind of pulled my punches a little bit because I'm a little worried about how this might affect my life. But if we truly immerse ourselves, take on head and heart, that there, this is just a staging area for real eternal life, like if there is actually resurrection, we do come back from the dead, and there is something else, not just a nice idea we sing about, but an actual true reality. If we believe that, it is going to affect the way that we look at the 80-odd years that we have here, won't it? So that's a little challenge. I'm just going to let that seep out. I'm just going to let that settle in, and I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do what He wants with it. There's no, no pressure, no condemnation, no nothing about that. I'm not kind of pointing out people, you need to get more involved. You need to get more involved. That's not the way we do things here. We just want to lead you into the presence of God so he can put something on your heart. And what I want us to take on is this idea. If there truly is life after death, let us look at this life in that light. Yeah? All right. Then Paul shows the other side of the coin in verse 51 to 55. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. 
For we will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Okay. So, Christian theology says that sometime in the future, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We have no idea if it's going to be a thousand years from now or if he's going to come back before I've even finished the message. We do not know. But what we do know is that a couple of things are going to happen for those who follow Jesus, for Christians. There's a couple of things that are going to happen. First of all, all of those who have died in history, who have followed Jesus, they are going to be resurrected. They're going to come back to life. Don't know if they're going to look like zombies and then get a new body. I mean, it's going to be cool, but whatever. So they're going to come back to life. And then at the same time, some people, because not everyone's going to be dying, there's going to be people around who are still alive. So we don't get resurrected, right, because we don't die. But there's still kind of a resurrection between this old body that we have that is dying, there is death in our bodies, and we get transformed into immortal bodies that live forever. We can't make it into heaven without a mortal body, an immortal body. We need that in order to live in this new eternal kingdom. So there's going to be this moment when the bodies that we have, even if we are alive when he comes, that our bodies are going to be transformed into something else. This, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if we get wings. That would be cool. But I know that there will be no death in our bodies. There will be no degrading of our genes or our, our cells. There will be no aging. There will be no disease. There will be no injury. My chemical, the chemical makeup of my brain will be completely stable and clean. There'll be no depression. There'll be no anxiety. There'll be no mental health issues. None of that. All of that is gone. Everything that represents the death process of humanity is gone. And in essence, death dies in that moment. Death dies. This is why he says, where is your victory? Where's your sting, death? What have you got? Where's your power? Because death has been pretty effective up until this point. I mean, of all of the people that have ever walked the planet, only two people can say that they've never died. Enoch and Elijah. Even Jesus can't say that. Everybody else has tasted death. But at this moment, no one will ever taste death again. It'll almost be like, hey, do you remember dial-up internet? Right? It'll be one of those weird sort of memories in a pastime. So from that moment, death, along with his friends, pain, suffering, they're going to be out of a job. They're done. Which means Easter is not just about chocolates and bunnies. It's about celebration of the ultimate and final solution to all suffering on our planet. It's the resurrection. Without that, there's nothing. So is the resurrection important? Yes. Yes, it is. 
The resurrection as a literal defeating of death is important because if Jesus did not die, or sorry, he did die. If Jesus did not come back from the dead, let's get my theology right, then we will not either. He is the first fruits of the coming back to life. That is everything that our faith is built on. Okay, so that is what the Bible says. But many people, even within the church, still don't trust that. It's interesting, many people kind of see, the, see Christianity as like the see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil uh, monkeys. You know, these guys, they don't see, they don't hear, they don't speak anything that's kind of bad. And they kind of, like, this is how Christians react to evidence about things, especially things like miracles and resurrection. We don't want to hear or see or say anything that's going to undercut what our beliefs are, that our parents gave us, that we've our traditions and mythology that we've picked up from times past. So if we are going to hold on to a belief that someday we're all going to come back from the dead, and if that belief is, is, is centered on the precedent that Jesus came back from the dead, if we're going to hold that and we're going to ask well-meaning, intelligent, you know, um, well-adjusted adult human beings to believe this with us, We need to give good reason for our faith. And for many people, that means we've got to provide something outside of this book of mythology we call the Bible. Now, I'm going to tell you this right from the start. There is no airtight, 100% foolproof, beyond a shadow of a doubt, evidence that the resurrection happened. Okay? It doesn't exist. That doesn't exist for almost anything. But what I want to give today is evidence to support the story. Evidence that kind of makes us go, okay, I can see that there is actual thought process in here. That a thinking mind can accept this as a possibility. And this is not just coming from my mediocre mind either, okay, because we don't want to go there. This is coming from the mind of academics, sharp, intelligent people who have studied this. Now, I also want to say, just before we get into some of this stuff, is that if you come in contact with a person who does not believe in the resurrection, what I do not recommend is taking some of the things that I'm going to say today and then firing at them and getting into an argument with them. Because if someone is arguing with you and then you argue back, what you're likely to get is just a lot of people talking loudly. And nothing ever actually happens of that. The Bible actually um, encourages us. It says, A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. So this is not about giving you ammunition for the fight. Okay? We're not trying to load up your guns so you can get out there and you can just mow all of these arguments down and stand supreme and say, Yeah, that's why we believe. Eat it. This is about, first and foremost, you in your faith, having something to go, I can appease my heart and my mind. That this is actually true, that there is something to this. And then maybe in conversations with people in a loving way, in a conversational way, in a relational way, you can say, hey, look, this is why I believe. And it's more than just because the Bible said so. Or more to the point, I believe that the Bible said so because I've got this other stuff to help back it up. Does that make sense? 
Okay. Now, a lot of what I'm going to come from, what I'm going to talk about is from this book, The Case for Christ. You guys have heard of this. It's a famous book. Um, there's another version of it. I have a couple of copies of this this morning if you would like one. Um, also, we've put a link in the Bible app um, to buy the book depository. It's like 13 bucks. It's free delivery worldwide. So if you want to get one of these, this has like way more than what I'm going to cover. I'm just going to cover a couple of little things. But there's a huge amount of interviews that this guy, Lee Strobel, is a journalist. He was an atheist. He went and he, he asked the experts. And this is a compilation of what he found out, became a Christian through the process. And now we have this resource. Um, we also have a link in the Bible app to the movie. It became a movie. Uh, Case for Christ movie came out in 2017. So you can see the trailer on there and maybe check that out. I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard it's really, really well done. Okay. All right. Two reasons I want to give from this book. Two things that I think really stood out to me. Two reasons we can, we can back this up. The first reason is impact. Okay. One of the things that historians look at is they look at, if you can't see or have eyewitness accounts of what actually happened, or if you don't necessarily trust those, you look at what happened around what happened. What were the effects? What were the things that happened around, in the culture around that time that point to something? It's like, you know, those what's-a-jig what's puzzles, you know, where you can't see the picture you're actually making on the puzzle, but you can see all of the people looking at that picture. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so you kind of use the reactions to try and figure out what's going on. So we can look at the impact of the resurrection to point to evidence of the resurrection happening. Let me explain what I mean. Jewish culture is incredibly resolute and stubborn. Okay? If you look historically, Jews are very good at keeping their culture. They've been dispersed around the world multiple times. They've been persecuted. They've been raided and, and exiled into different places. And everywhere they go, their culture remains. The places where they went, those cultures have disappeared. We don't have Babylonians anymore. We don't have Persians anymore. We don't have Hittites, Perizzites, all of those sorts of cultures. We don't have them, but we do have Jews. The Jewish culture is incredibly resolute because they pass down their customs, their beliefs, their practices, like incredibly well from generation to generation. Okay, we've seen this. So, oh, you know, there's an interesting, interesting little side point. Did you know that from, a, from BC, 60 BC, when Rome took over Israel, um, the Jews did not have control of their own nation all the way up until 1948. So 2,000 years, the Jews were everywhere except Israel. And yet their, their culture remains strong. And 1948, when they came back, picked up where they left off. All right? So... They don't give in to anyone. That's very, very important. Because within a few weeks of this sort of low-class Jewish rabbi turning up on the scene on the streets of Judea and Galilee, all right, within a few weeks of his death being crucified as a heretic, 10,000 Jews completely shift their entire culture away from Judaism or from the way Judaism has been practiced into this new branch of faith called Christianity. 10,000 Jews. They stop sacrificing for sins. 
They stop claiming that the laws of Moses are the only way to get into the the Jewish um, community. They start doing things that Jews have never done before, like communion. This would have been absolutely unthought of. All of these times that they've been told to to change their culture where they were, and suddenly, willingly, 10,000, this huge community of Jews, changes their culture. For a people as resilient and stubborn as the Jews, and this is a compliment for them, to make such a radical change over such a short amount of time and in such great numbers screams that something happened. Something changed their minds. Something completely revolutionized the way that they saw who they were, what their customs mean, and where their life was going. What could do something like that? The exile didn't do it. Rome didn't do it. It would make sense, however, if a rabbi came back from the dead and they saw it, or they knew people who had seen it, that could change their minds. The impact of the resurrection points to that event as being a reality. And that's just the first few weeks. Since that time, this story of a resurrected Jesus has spread all across the globe, all across the globe, every corner of the world, and is still going strong 2,000 years later. If you asked anybody in the Roman Empire at the time when this was happening, if this little, tiny little religious cult over here, that's what they would have called it, would outlast the Roman Empire, they would have laughed at you. They might have even killed you. I don't know. They were good like that. And yet it did. The second is Wikipedia. Anyone can create a page on Wikipedia, yes? I could go on Wikipedia and I could say, I was watching the America's Cup the other month and I saw a massive water spout, this water tornado, rip through and take the American America's Cup boat, American Magic, and throw it up and capsize it. I could write that. No problem. Um, Something would happen, though, because pretty soon people would start reading my page because I'm pretty popular. And they would read this page and they would kind of go, I don't remember that. I mean, my mate was on a boat. You know, there were hundreds of people out on, on the harbor that day, even without TV coverage. There's hundreds of people out on there. I'm going to call my mate. Hey, did you see this happen? And he's like, yeah, well, I saw them belly flop. That, that's real. But no tornado. Call up another mate. Nah, no tornado. Call up another mate. Nah, no tornado. So pretty soon, the story falls apart, Yeah. No one really believes it. My um, Wikipedia page is, is taken down. My you know, account is deleted and I'm ransacked amongst people. In the first century, there is no internet. Okay, We don't have Wikipedia back then. But they also don't have news media either. They don't have like a system of information giving. So what they do is they tell stories of what's happened. They talk to each other. Wouldn't that be interesting, talking to each other? And so they talk to each other, and they spread their stories through letters, and they tell people around the world what's going on. So there are these letters floating around in the first century, including 1 Corinthians. 
And in 1 Corinthians, it says something really, really strange in verse 3 and 4. You've got to be ready to go. Moments notice, Alex. <laughs> okay. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He gone, sorry. Five to eight. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Okay, so straight up, he's saying, here's what happened, guys. And here's an interesting thing. Did you notice right at the beginning there, he says, I pass on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. This language tells us, and, and scholars have looked at the structure of what follows from that, and he says, these aren't Paul's words. This is not something that he is saying. This is like a, a statement or a creed or this kind of common idea that had been passed around. This, this sort of like this summary statement, okay? So he's saying, I got passed on to this story and I'm passing it on to you. This is what happened. So that means this statement came from even before Paul wrote the letter to the first Corinthians, okay? So anyway, this is being passed around. People would have heard it. It would have been floating around. Now, this is very easy because there's something in here also you would have noticed that not only would Peter saw him, not many people would know Peter. The 12 saw him. Maybe you know someone who knows the 12. But then 500 of his followers saw him at one time. This resurrected Jesus, this, this guy come back from the dead. Okay, so now we're claiming that someone actually saw him in the flesh. Not just one, 500 people. Okay, there's a very good chance that you, as a Jew living in Corinth or in around the, the world, you didn't see this happen, but there's a good chance you've got a cousy bro in Jerusalem that you can go and call, and you can say, well, not call, you would write a letter and say, what the heck's going on, man? I'm hearing stuff about ghosts or zombies or you know, I've got a little apocalypse thing going on over there. What's happening? To which your cousin in Jerusalem will go, don't worry about that. That's just a false rumor. That's just this idiot story. Nothing happened. Oh, okay. This is a stupid story. Don't worry, guys. This is not what's going on. Or you write, what the heck's going on in Jerusalem? I'm hearing about this guy raising from the dead. And he's like, you will not believe this. I saw him. And you know these other people here? They saw him too. They can testify to this. It actually happened. So either the story would fall over, because these people are still alive, you would find out, and the rumor would spread, and nah, this, is, this is rubbish. Because there were other letters going around at the time saying stuff that wasn't true, and they did fall over. We don't have them in our Bible. But this survived. The story survived, and it spread, which says it was refutable, but wasn't refuted. Yeah? That's just two. There's all sorts of other things around, did the disciples steal a body? Around, was the grave even empty? Around all sorts of different things in this book. I really recommend having a read. Because there is evidence that we can trust the story that is in the Bible. Does that make sense? We, we got that? Cool. All right. Now, as I said before, there is no airtight, perfect proof of the resurrection. 
But I hope there is enough evidence that you can take this head evidence and you can lay it next to the heart evidence, the experiences you may have had, the things that God may have done in your life. And we have these stories. They're not to be thrown away. They sit alongside and you can see, all right, I have this and I have this. So I have all of this evidence that supports that God is who he says he is, right? Which means that this gap here of what I don't understand or what doesn't seem to make sense or there is no evidence of this, there's enough to bridge that gap that I can take a step of faith that even if I don't understand that, there's enough to say that this probably is okay. Does that make sense? Because that's the best that we can do. That's the best that anyone can do about anything. We never have 100% of anything. But we have confidence in the story based on the evidence that we do have. Yeah? All right. Paul ends the chapter with this last statement in verse 58. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. This is what it all comes down to. Why do we live the lives that we live as Christians? God tells us to. Why do we trust that? Because we're looking forward to a life beyond the life that we have now. And for many of us, with the life that we actually do have right now, that's a great thing because I'm tired of some of the things in my life right now and I'm ready for something better, right? Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you've got a great life. Maybe things are going perfectly for you right now and you're like, I just don't want to mess that up. Our step of faith is that, you know what, as good as it is, this is temporary, it's fleeting. And it's probably going to turn sour at some point anyway. That's negative. There's just, there are things that go on, right? But there is something more, something worth chasing something worth giving your life for so be strong be immovable i love that word be immovable on this and then you will know that whatever god asks you to do whatever you end up doing for him it won't be useless it's not going to be in vain it is pointing to something something amazing so let's celebrate easter with confidence and with joy. Let's take communion together, the celebration of what happened that weekend 2,000 years ago. Let's take this together not only with a sense of remembering what Jesus did for us, but as a statement of faith that we trust that he did what he said he did and that he will do what he says he will do that we will one day be resurrected with him also.